0: This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio by me. I'm Alex Bennett. This chapter is kind of convoluted, so it has kind of a convoluted title, which is basically Burning Man, The End of Paul, and Play. All that will be explained as we go on. As you know, I had been let go from Live 105 in San Francisco, where I had a very successful run. But it was now time to go to something else. And my friend Paul Montgomery, who i become very close to, I might add, uh, said to me, good, I'm glad you were fired because now I can use you. And he had me come up to Play Incorporated, the company he ran up in Sacramento, California, and said, sit in that office and figure out something to do here. And I did. And as you heard in the last episode, uh, I came up with a thing called... Play TV. Uh, It started out as radio with uh, me and a guy out in uh, Will Wilkins out in the East Bay, and then up in uh, Canada, I got a guy named Revelstoke Jim to do a show. And they were all kind of radio at the beginning. But because this company had a product called The Trinity, which was a television studio in a box, we soon migrated to being a television network with live programs coming from each of these cities. Mine a two hour a day from two o'clock in the afternoon until four. And it was really, it was one of the more inventive uh, moments of my life because there was this whole new thing called the internet that nobody had really done broadcasting with and we were broadcasting on it in a very real way. But anyway, Paul was my best friend, and I told you how we would go up to Lake Tahoe and gamble and how he used to like me to take him to the Moonlight Bunny Ranch so he could spend $500 to talk to a naked lady. Really, that's true. Um, if you're listening, Michelle, he never cheated on you at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. He just liked to talk. So anyway, that's where we left it off. But I have a couple of stories to tell that are kind of uh, fit right in now uh if you know the 30th anniversary of a yearly tradition is about to take place it was 30 years ago uh on labor day weekend that something started called burning man now burning man has turned into this clusterfuck out in the desert but I say that because we remember it when it wasn't a clusterfuck, when it was just a kind of interesting thing they were doing out there in the desert. Uh, It started in San Francisco, by the way. It started on the beach in San Francisco, where for about seven years going they had decided to uh, do... uh, uh, this thing where they would take this wooden man and they would burn him on the beach in what was somewhat of a primitive ritual. And people would show up and they would be in costumes and so on. But uh, the city of San Francisco didn't like that. Uh, you're burning a thing on the beach and these thousands of people or a couple of thousand people are showing up for this thing. You can't do it here. And uh, so uh, the guy who was the head of it, Larry, and I'm trying to remember his last name, Harmon or Larry, I can't remember his last name, um, decided to move the whole thing out to the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. And the Black Rock Desert is probably the largest landmass with nothing in it in the entire United States. Let me tell you what the Black Rock Desert is like it's only about eight miles across but it's about 40 miles long. And there is no vegetation, there is nothing there. And uh, you could literally start at the beginning, close your eyes, put your foot on the gas pedal, and go 40 miles before you have to open your eyes. Why? Because there's nothing, absolutely nothing. You're not gonna hit a rock, you're not gonna, there's nothing. It's like being on the face of the moon and maybe not as as full of, uh, 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 you know, mountains and things like that as the moon has. Anyway, he decided to move it there. And Paul and I had heard about this thing that was going to go on in the Black Rock Desert. It had gone on, I think, maybe for a year before us. Uh, but we decided we were in Sacramento and... Uh, uh, he had his little sports car and we figured what the hell let's go up there for the day and see what the hell is happening so we drove all the way up to the black rock desert and uh there was the gate to get in and i think i may be wrong but i think the fee to get in was ten dollars i'm not kidding you you know what it is today it's somewhere like 500 dollars. i it, it's amazing per person all right so anyway so we paid we paid our ten bucks and we drive forever on this desert. And they, give, they give us kind of a map. Uh, basically, it just says, keep going straight ahead. And finally, we come to this area where there are a bunch of people doing this thing. And we could only stay for the day because we hadn't brought any provisions or anything like that. We just wanted to see what was up. And there were, I think, about four to 5,000 people there. Maybe. That may be... An outside bet could have been more like three thousand, okay? And Paul and I immediately fell in love with the idea. I mean, here was this, this thing out in the middle of nowhere, where the only way you could survive is if you were there with other people, and they were helping you to survive, and together you were all surviving. If you took one person, put them in the middle of that desert in the middle of summer or on the Labor Day weekend and just left him there, he might die. But you put a 1,000 or 2,000 or 10,000 and it becomes something else. You have literally taken nothing and molded it into something. And we kind of liked it. Uh, We we just thought it was just a swell idea and we swore the next year we were gonna come back and maybe be able to spend the night and and, uh, maybe the next day or whatever. So the next year, we in fact, did exactly that. Now, I can't remember if I was uh, working for play at that time. I don't I don't think I was working for play at the time that we went to Burning Man, uh, all three times that we went to Burning Man. Yeah, because the last burning man we went to was in 96. The first one was 94. So now we went in 95, Paul and I decided to, and I can't remember how we managed to stay overnight. I think Paul got us a, uh, uh, you know, one of these uh, uh, trailers or whatever that you sleep in. And uh, so we went up there and we spent the day and then the next night was the burning of the man. Now we hadn't seen the burning before because we were only up there for one day and we saw the burning. And uh, it was, you know, uh, it was really kind of wonderful. People would go out there and dance around it and so on. There was even kind of a sense of danger because especially back then, they didn't really have like uh, uh, security people saying stay away from the fire. So people were going out there and getting embers all over their naked bodies and things like that. But it was really something to see. And, and also that year, the thing that we found that was a lot of fun is they had, people had done certain crazy things. And the craziest one, and the one I loved, was what was called a sh- uh, drive-by shooting range. Outaways, and you had to know where to go to find it, they had put up a shooting range. But it was like uh, you know stuffed rabbits and uh, toys and uh, targets and things like that. And what you would do if you had a gun is you would drive by and shoot at them. Now, you're not going to hurt anybody. This is the middle of the goddamn desert. There's nobody out there. And people would go out there and use the drive-by shooting range. Well, by the time we got there the next year, the drive-by shooting range had all but disappeared. Couldn't figure out where the hell it went. Uh, but they I think they decided it was just too dangerous. Because what happened in the next year, we decided we would go full force, okay? And what we were gonna do, he, we had these uh, you know, these uh, trailers, what do they call them, you know, these uh, mobile homes. And uh, uh, Paul uh, and Play rented, I think we had four of them, maybe five, and we all got in them, and we drove up to, you know, the, the Black Rock Desert, and now there were more like 10,000 people there. See, it was starting to grow. And, uh, you know, people were walking around naked and doing the whole thing. And our, our little piece that we did, uh, that we f- thought we were giving to it, was our, uh, our drive-in movie. Uh, we were gonna do a drive-in movie. What we're gonna do is take one of these trailers out to the desert and then have people drive their cars to the screen and then sit there and we were gonna show like showgirls one night. and We had a whole bunch of videos that we brought with us. Instead, uh, we changed the plan and just decided we were gonna show movies on the side of, of one of these trailers, one of these uh, mobile homes. Uh, and um, I don't know, what do you call those things? Mobile homes, tra- trailers, caravans, they call them in England. I'll call it a caravan. Anyway, so we would show movies and things like that. And uh, we had some interesting friends with us that year. Uh, Dana Carvey has a brother named Brad. Brad is the guy, I told you, who had uh, invented the video toaster along with a couple of other guys. And uh, and now was working with Paul on various products at uh, at Play. And uh, he, by the way, I should tell you, if you don't know what Brad is like, Brad is like Garth in Wayne's world. Why is he like Garth? Because basically Garth was modeled after Brad. And so Brad was there and Joel Hodgson was there with us and his brother, Joel of uh, Mystery Theater two th- Mystery Science Theater 2000. And then I think it was later changed to 3000. Uh, and so Joel was with us and we just had a whole, we had about maybe 10, 15 people max. And uh, we stayed there for the whole festival. Uh, And we um, uh, finally got to see a really good burn. I mean, a better burn than we saw the first time. The first time it was good. This time it was spectacular because now there were 10,000 people out there. It was getting to be a big deal. Uh, It sounded very nice, too. Something like this. Listen to it get lit. On fire and people are dancing around it and embers are coming down and I remember that particular year the man just wouldn't fall so finally they had to kind of tug on the toe lines and the thing finally fell to the ground and they went crazy they went apoplectic Now, I understand the man today is taller than he used to be, and uh, the amount of people that show up is, I I don't know, what, 50,000 people, some amazing amount of people, and the price has gone up and so on, but Paul and I made a deal with ourselves that we would keep going to Burning Man until somebody got killed. That was what we said, and sure enough, that year, three people got killed. Uh, one guy was sleeping in a sleeping bag out in the desert out in the middle of the desert and somebody ran over him with a car and another one I think it was a, a gun uh, issue and uh, None of these deeds uh, deaths by the way, they were all accidental None of them were from violence or anything like that But when we heard about that, I looked at Paul and I said well, that's it for uh, Burning Man, right? And he says yeah, and after this it's probably gonna suck and I just remember that we had a wonderful time. And if you ever want to see that Burning Man with Paul, uh, it's available online. I posted it on uh, Vimeo and, uh, you know, I occasionally post it on a lot of my own sites and so on on the anniversary. But, you know, that was uh, 1996, that one. So that makes it 20 years ago for us. And that was the 10th anniversary of Burning Man. And uh, all i remember is that it was something very very special i also remember something that you know usually you you go to those kind of things you get stoned you get high right I, we never got high you didn't have to you would go out there in the middle of the night uh walk around or drive around and go see people and do doing things and the various things are going on and you would just get high from it all i mean it was just wonderful And uh, uh, so I remember that as a very fond moment with Paul and with the rest of us. And and we left and and just like I said, you know, we had agreed never to go back after if anybody ever died. And three people died that year. And we said, that's it, you know, and we, we never went back. There's another reason why we didn't go back. And I'm going to tell you that in a moment. But let me tell you more about play. I was doing the show. Uh, at two o'clock in the afternoon, went till four in the afternoon, and it was a TV show, full-blown TV show out of my apartment. I had two apartments in the same building, one where I did the show and one that I lived in. And uh, uh, it was wonderful. And I I had a crew. I had a whole bunch of people working with me. But most important was Christy. Christy, well, she had become Christy Andrade. She originally was Christy Frazier. And now she had left her husband and needed work. And because we had parted not on good terms initially, because remember, she went and had a baby. And then when she came back, I really didn't want her back. The station kept her employed. And I made sure of that. And they had to, because that's the law. But uh, I had issues with her because of, oh, I don't know. She, she, she cared too much, I guess, about my show and was too, very protective of it, even against me. But I liked Christy. And she came to me and she said, hey, I want to leave my husband. I, this is, it's not working out. I need a job. Do you know anybody that can hire me? And I immediately called to Paul and I say, I need a producer for this thing. And he said, okay, we'll hire and they paid her uh, i mean they threw a salary at her that i think was the best salary she had ever gotten up until that point point. and so she took care of the office and the the studio in san francisco and was my producer and uh i couldn't have been happier and she was terrific i mean once in a great while it was the nature of our working relationship that once in a great while usually it usually was once a year we would have a blowout fight I mean, we would yell at each other. And you, it, she'd leave in a huff and go, I'm never coming back, and I'm getting good riddance, see you later. And the next day she was back, and I'm sorry, and I'm sorry too, and, you know. But that was because we both wanted this thing to be the best thing it possibly could be. And, 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 and there were pressures, okay? There were pressures. But the show did well, and then we added more shows so that really... Um, Play TV was 12 hours a day of live television, if you can believe that. And the rest of the day, we just reran the 12 hours of programming over again. And it really was something very special. And um, it it was too early. It was too early. You know, uh, lately I've had a saying, and I said it recently in an interview that somebody did with me. I said, it's great to be the first one to do something, but you'll never be successful doing it. Be the second one. And because we were the first ones, and we were the first ones at a time that, well, wasn't all that great. See, I started 1997, I'm out of Live 105. 1998, we're doing Play TV. 1999, we're doing Play TV. And uh, everything's going great, and you know, I'm working for the best guy in the world. He's my friend, and the friendship is staying because we're both committed to this thing. He's committed to seeing it work. And uh, I get a telephone call. And I'll never forget this telephone call because it was something that you just, you know, you didn't expect. This was June 19th, 1999. I get a call, and all the person, I can't remember who called me, as a matter of fact. But they said, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah. He said, what's up? And it was one of the people at play, and I, I, I wish I could remember who. I guess I got was so stunned by it, I don't remember. And he said, Paul's dead. I said, what? He said, Paul's dead. I said, what happened? He said, he had a heart attack, we think because they didn't know at the moment exactly what it was. He had a heart attack and dropped dead. And I went, I was, I was stunned. I, I mean, I say I went. And I don't know what to tell you I went because I was just, I was sputtering. You know, I've had, I had friends who had died, but no one as close as Paul was to me. And I was stunned. I was just absolutely stunned. He was the heart and soul of play. He was the advocate. He was the disciple. Uh, He was the prophet. He was everything at play. And you couldn't imagine what play would be like without Paul because Paul was play and play was Paul. And now he's dead. And then I'm going through the, the, this whole uh, kind of grief thing where you then say, "You motherfucking cocksucker, how could you die?" You know, Paul had not uh, taken great care of himself. He'd gained quite a bit of weight. That happens in the uh, in the uh, in the tech business. People sit around all day. Working at desks, and they get fatter, and they eat the Cheetos, and they eat, they drink the Mountain Dew. Was the, you know, the, the the fuel, the rocket fuel, for the tech revolution. And you don't take too good care of yourself, and he wasn't taking great care of himself. And and so now I'm I'm swearing at him. How could you fucking die on me, you motherfucking cocksucker? I remember being, in, the grief was replaced by being mad at him. And I couldn't figure out why. And I figured out why very soon. It was because Paul had done something that was terrible to me. He had robbed me of Paul. Now to say that Paul was my best friend, at that point in my life, yes, Paul was my best friend. And now you have to do the thing that you have to do when there are deaths. And you have to go to a funeral. And I, I, I don't know how to put this any nicer than the funeral was kind of a combination tribute to Paul and, and a partially everybody jockeying for position. It's a hard thing for me to explain But here was a company who suddenly realized it was rudderless. Oh yeah, there was another partner, this uh, Progressive Image Technologies, but Paul was the heart and soul of the company. And so rather than go into grief, immediately a lot of these people went into takeover mode, I mean, you know they were all saying well i i think i should run it and i think i should do this and i should do that and they're all starting to jockey for position and paul isn't even in the ground yet okay and i, I would walk around it uh, they held like a little uh, gathering for everybody so that we could all cry on each other's shoulders And all I heard were people saying, well, here's what I think we should do with the company, here's what I think we should do with the company, here's what I think we should do with the company. And I was about ready to yell out and say, hey, fucking assholes, Paul is dead. Let's wait for his body to be buried before you even start thinking about this stuff. There was something kind of fun they did. And I loved it. Paul was always on his cell phone. In fact, the first guy that I remember having uh, a, a handheld cell phone was Paul. It was one of those Motorola jobs, uh, those uh, uh, flip phones that they had, and he was always on the on the on the cell phone. I mean, the cell phone was always in his hand. The earpiece was to his ear, and he was the mouthpiece was to his mouth. Even if he wasn't on it, <laughs> he loved his cell phone. So. A bunch of the people got together, got his cell phone, went to the funeral parlor. And while nobody was looking, because it was an open casket, if I remember correctly, or maybe it wasn't, maybe they opened the casket to do this, turned the cell phone on and put it in his pocket. And then they were very proud of this. They were telling everybody what they did. And I said, why'd you do it? Do you think maybe he's going to be able to get a phone call in, in his next life? And they said, well, you never know. But I know why they did it. And I found out. We went to the funeral. They're putting the, the uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the casket into the ground. And as we're walking away, Somebody dials Paul's number, and the phone rings. <laughs> uh, that was a goodbye for him. That was a good goodbye. But Paul not being there robbed the company of its spirit. It robbed everybody. Tried to keep the same spirit. Tried to keep the same attitude about the company, and and they just. They couldn't capture that same lightning in a bottle, okay? Uh, it just didn't feel the same. But we kept doing the shows, you know, and and, and uh, it was now getting into being uh, 2000, year 2000. And um, things are kind of getting hinky in the, the business. And it's like... Um, 2001, and things are getting really bad in the business. All these computer companies, as you remember, were starting to collapse. I mean, it was terrible. Now, let me tell you that I got a job, and I'll tell you more about it next time, at CNET. Because while I was doing the uh, play thing, the people over at CNET had a radio station and wanted me to do a show every day for a couple of hours. So I remember seeing this whole industry just dying. Okay? I mean, one company after another going under. This one failing, that one failing, this one closing their doors. And you could go down Montgomery Street, the business district in San Francisco, and people were just so moving out that you could find desks and Aeron chairs, and you could just take them and go home with them for your home office because uh, these companies were going out of business that fast. Well, one day I find that I, I was, uh, pay, uh, they were paying for the apartment that was the business, um, you know where the studio was, and they were also paying uh, my crew, and they were also paying me. And now I'm not getting any checks. And now it's getting to be like $50,000 worth of money they owe me, and all of a sudden I get the call. We're closing down Play TV. We were like the first to go. Why? I, you know, I, If Paul were still there, I'd be the last to go, but Paul was gone. There was nobody there protecting me. There was nobody there who was invested emotionally in Play TV like we were. And the next thing I know, I don't have a job anymore, at least with Play. I still now have a fairly decent one at CNET, but I'm owed $50,000, and I'm not seeing it. Well, you know, $50,000 be damned, I finally got some money back because they went into bankruptcy and I filed against them because they sold play to somebody else and then they sold the assets or whatever uh, and they, you know, they, they had a bankruptcy. And uh, I, of course, got in line to collect money. And out of that $50,000, I remember I got a $300 check. Anyway, Paul was dead. I was devastated. Play TV was dead. I was devastated. But I still had CNET radio. But that wasn't going to turn out to be a great thing either. But that's another story for next time. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audiobiography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.